Knot, a podcast series by Radio Canada International. We will fight until the end if Armenia does not make a commitment that they will withdraw from Peace can't be achieved through the unilateral actions of Armenia. Конечно, это огромная трагедия. Люди гибнут, большие потери. I'm Levon Sebuns, and this is the Nagorno-Karabakh Not podcast. Here we examine the roots of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, its impact on the Armenian and Azerbaijani societies and the larger region. We'll also be looking at possible ways of resolving this conflict. And today we're talking about the role played by Russia, perhaps the most important actor in this conflict outside Armenia and Azerbaijan, of course. My guest today is Alexander Gabuyev. He is a senior fellow and chair at Russia in the Asia-Pacific program at the Carnegie Moscow Center. Alexander Gabuyev, welcome to Radio Canada International. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be with you. Alexander, let's begin by setting the stage here. How does Russia see the South Caucasus in terms of its national interests? And where do Armenia and Azerbaijan and the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict fit in this picture? Uh, well, South Caucasus used to be part of the Russian Empire and then Soviet Union for uh, more than uh, 100 years. Uh, it's, it's a neighbor since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and it's a very important one because the Russian bordering region of northern Caucasus is a source of trouble. It's populated predominantly by Muslim population. Uh, Russia uh, had a war against separatists in Chechen Republic in the 90s, and it's still a huge source of terrorism, bulk of the Russians who fought in Syria and support ISIS uh, come from this region. So Russia sees uh, any sort of regional instability as a precursor for influx of more radical elements towards Russia itself. So security really dominates the Russian agenda in South Caucasus. And obviously, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is one of the so-called frozen conflict that's always source of tension and that can always uh, unfreeze very rapidly, as was at display uh, this, this autumn uh, with Azerbaijani onslaught on uh, territories occupied and held by Armenia in Nagorno-Karabakh. In terms of how it, Russia has built its strategic relationships with Armenia and Azerbaijan, Armenia, it has a, a defense treaty with Armenia. Uh, Armenia is also part of the collective defense treaty organization. Uh, but it all, Russia also has uh, very close economic and political relationships with Azerbaijan. How has Russia balanced or juggled this relationship? Uh, I think that for for Russia, uh, an essential part is really the way you put it to balance the relationships in the region. Before 2008 war in Georgia, 
when uh, Russia intervened uh, and that later recognized uh, Abkhazia and Ossetia, two breakaway Georgian regions as independent states, uh, which Georgia called occupation of uh, Georgian territory. Uh, before that, Russia had somewhat good relationship with all three, although they have been uh, problematic, as usually relationship between former colonies and a metropoly. Uh, but overall, they have been uh, pretty stable. Uh, the region since the dissolution of the Soviet Union was opened up for more geopolitical competition. So Russia is not the only great power uh, in this neighborhood. But there is also the U.S. and the West as the global superpower and then its European allies. There is Turkey, which is, uh, again, Azerbaijan is Turkic. The language is very similar. And there are multiple uh, connections going back centuries. Armenia and Georgia are Christian republics. Uh, and then there is Iran as well, which is a giant neighbor of uh, Armenia and the region as a whole. So for Russia, which has both Armenian and Azeri population in Russia, that is a huge diaspora on both sides, uh, plays a very important role in the cultural and economic life. Many of Russian billionaires are of Azeri or Armenian origin. Uh, maintaining a balance of this relationship is essential. And uh, Azerbaijan, since it has the oil revenue, is very wealthy, has a very strong ties with brotherly. Turkey drifted away from Russia more rapidly, but at the same time was a sort of model behavior. Uh, it celebrated the victory in World War II. It never trashed the Russian or Soviet uh, legacy that much. And it was kind of a very gradual path to divorce from the former metropolis. Uh, in Georgia, we see a slightly different situation and after the Rose Revolution in 2003. The pro-Western government has taken radical steps to bring the country closer to European Union and NATO, which resulted in the uh, war of 2008. So Armenia, as the poorest landlocked country, which is a Christian one, had no other option to forge a military alliance with Russia and join all the formats in the post-Soviet space that Russia cheers. So it uh, banks its security and economic prosperity on its ties with Russia. Hmm. Now, um, Russia has been a, a very active uh, diplomatic uh, member of the, the so-called Minsk Group uh, co-chairs, uh, Russia, France, and the U.S., of course. Um, it, ha it was the principal actor in getting the the first ceasefire in the 1994 ceasefire assigned, uh, what was Russia's strategy in dealing with uh, this conflict uh, when uh, the war, this new war, erupted uh, on September 27th? Uh, I guess for Russia, maintaining status quo was and maintaining peace was of paramount importance. Uh, yes, the conflict uh, was a guarantee that Russia will be uh, in the region and will be indispensable partner for both Azerbaijan and Armenia. But even if the conflict would be resolved, uh, although the urgency of reaching out to Moscow would be arguably less, but Russia still will be a towering presence in the region, a giant neighbor, a huge market, uh, home for 
millions of Azeris and Armenia. So Russian influence wouldn't be diminished uh, significantly if the conflict is resolved. But Russia, as ally of Armenia, uh, at the same time was very clear-eyed that the military balance is shifting in favor of Azerbaijan, because due to oil and gas revenues, Azerbaijan's military budget was uh, 3.5 times bigger than that of Armenia every year, starting with uh, 2001. Uh, so the military balance was very rapidly tilting towards Baku, and uh, Russia was always telling Armenia that the leverage that Armenia had by controlling Nagorno-Karabakh and controlling seven adjacent uh, regions that uh, have historically been Azerbaijan and uh, were never part of Nagorno-Karabakh that were uh, predominantly uh, Azeri-populated before, before the war uh, that ended in 1994. So Russia said that you should trade this leverage sooner rather than later and discuss the status for Nagorno of Nagorno-Karabakh. So there were efforts of the Minsk group that has uh, Russia, France, and the United States as permanent co-chairs uh, to set up the principles uh, for conflict resolution, the so-called Magnitsky principle. Russia exercised its own diplomacy, but it failed because uh, the impression in Moscow, at least, is that the Armenian side was always sure that uh, the status quo won't change much, that all of the three co-chairs have very sizable Armenian deference, and that's why the format will protect Armenian interests, and then Armenia is not interested in real compromise. Uh, at the same time, Russia was pretty clear-cut to Armenia all the time that, yes, we have a military treaty, but this treaty covers only internationally recognized territory of Armenia. It doesn't cover Nagorno-Karabakh. So if you are not willing to make any concessions uh, at the negotiation table, if there is a situation that uh, Azerbaijan will go into military offensive, uh, for God's sake, we will not be there to kind of put boots on the ground and fight a war with our neighbor for you. Uh, it will be your job. And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. So uh, what was, uh, once this conflict began uh, and the fighting began, um, there was a, a big change this time around is that uh, there was a new player um uh, that was being very uh, assertive, uh, some would say very aggressive, in trying to get insert or insert itself into uh, uh, diplomatically and militarily into this conflict. And I'm talking about Turkey. Uh, did that change at all Russia's calculus? Well, I think that changed uh, significantly the balance of power on the ground. Uh, I think that Baku and Ankara which have been very closely coordinating on this military campaign. And uh, there are some reports in the Russian press leaked by the Russian intelligence service that there was a lot of material help, guidance, Turkish officers participating in the planning and execution of some operations, uh, reports that the official Ankara denied. Um, so they have chosen a moment where the U.S. was absorbed in its own political drama uh, before the election, the EU was busy with you know, the pandemic, and then Russia was also busy with COVID and then uh, fallout of uh, street protests in Belarus. So not that much attention has been paid to what's happening in Nagorno-Karabakh and not that much coordination between Paris, Washington, D.C., and Moscow 
what's happening. And then Turkey was really very forceful in its military support and very vocal for the first time in its public support. I guess that uh, the degree of that support was somewhat unexpected, although I guess that Moscow had no illusions that Turkey's growing profile in the region will play a role because uh, Turkey, again, under Erdogan leadership, is on a path of becoming a very strong regional power, very ambitious, stretching uh, its influence from northern Africa to the Balkans, to Central Asia even, and to South Caucasus, of course, which is a shared neighborhood. So there was no big surprise that Turkey will be a player. I think that the degree of Turkey's involvement caught Moscow off guard. Hmm. Now, uh, how do you think uh, Russia's uh, past interactions or uh, its interests in places like Syria and Libya um, shaped how it reacted in Nagorno-Karabakh? Was that at all a factor in its calculations, the fact that it had... um, uh, you know, forces, uh, Russian forces in Syria, in the immediate, uh, uh, you know, underbelly of Turkey, that uh, there are significant problems uh, in Libya. H- how did that play out, you think? I guess what's important here is really that we shouldn't look at this as a zero-sum competition for regional influence between Moscow and Ankara. Yes, this competition is ongoing, but I don't think that uh, it's really Russia sees every advances of Ankara and particularly uh, all the advances of Azerbaijan as aimed at diminishing uh, Russian influence or aimed at Russia. Because I think that Russia has a more nuanced view of Azeri foreign policy. Yes, Azerbaijan uh, really benefits a lot from its partnership with Turkey. Uh, it sees Turkey as the more senior, elder, bigger brother coming from the same cultural roots. But at the same time, Aliyev dynasty wants to maintain sovereignty uh, of Azerbaijan, and it doesn't want to turn it into entirely a junior client state of Turkey that will be 100% uh, doing everything that Ankara tells Baku to do. So Aliyev and Azerbaijan are balancing carefully, putting obviously more, increasingly more eggs into the Turkish basket, but also putting some eggs uh, into the Russian basket. And that played a very important role at the last stage of the conflict. So for Moscow, the channels of communication to Ankara, particularly on the uh, layer of uh, President Vladimir Putin and uh, Erdogan, Uh, was very important. So Russia has these ties to Ankara where it knows how to talk. It knows that the interests are not necessarily uh, all the time compatible, like in the case of Libya, but there is always a way to find a pragmatic solution how to manage the, the competition. And I think that this experience, the experience that they had in Idlib, that they had in Libya, was used here again and again. Hmm. Just a reminder, I'm Levan Sevons, and this is the Nagorno-Karabakh Not podcast on Radio Canada International. My guest today is Alexander Gabuyev. He's a senior fellow and chair at the Russia in, in the South Asia Pacific program of the Carnegie Moscow Center. Now, um, did Turkey's introduction of Syrian and Libyan mercenaries and jihadists in this conflict affect at all Kremlin's calculations? 
Well, I think that Moscow became worried seeing some information about this. But again, we have some well-established and corroborated proofs that there were some fighters brought into the region, uh, corroborated by international media. But uh, for me, it's hard to assess the scale of their involvement. And I think that Russia's judgment is that, yes, uh, these guys played a role, and it's bad that they are there. Uh, but I think that it's a far more decisive role that the drones uh, played in uh, in, the, in the battlefield, and probably if they have been, uh, if they were guided by experienced Turkish officers, that played a bigger role than introduction of mercenaries uh, mercenaries to the, bottom, the battlefield. Now, Russia was, of course, instrumental in getting this ceasefire agreement. Today, uh, Russian peacekeepers have begun to deploy in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. How do you see Russia's role going forward? Well, I think that Russia managed to turn the situation where it has uh, no good options into a situation where it's still the most powerful outside uh, player. And uh, the fact that this statement was brokered by Moscow was signed by the two leaders and uh, President Vladimir Putin with no presence of uh, President Rohan, uh, that's really important. And uh, the fact that the Russian boots on the ground in the conflict zone secure peace and that the, uh, as part of this uh, agreement or statement that has been signed, uh, there is a, a link that will connect Azerbaijan to its ex of Nikichivan to Armenian territory. And this road will be controlled and administered by Russian uh, forces. I think that's very significant and that points to the Russian role. Uh, at the same time, Turkey will be uh, present as well. There will be a joint uh, ceasefire monitoring center established on Azeri territory, not inside Nagorno-Karabakh, controlled by the Armenian side, but outside. And they will be unarmed uh, Turkish officers who will monitor the implementation of the ceasefire together with their Russian colleagues. And what is the significance for uh, Russia's national interest, the fact that it now has boots on the ground in Azerbaijan as well? I mean, you it has a base in Armenia, or actually two bases in Armenia, if you also consider the, uh, the, the Air Force base in Yerevan. Um, it has uh, Russian troops now in uh, South Ossetia and in Abkhazia, and now it has a 2,000-strong peacekeeping contingent in uh, Azerbaijan. What does it mean for Russia's national interests? So Russia has boosted its military presence in uh, South Caucasus, no doubt about that. The uh, problem with the peacekeepers is that it's not very easy to use them as a force uh, projection mechanism, although you can do that, but you will definitely overstep your mandate. And again, this mandate is not uh, blessed by the UN so far, and we'll see whether that will happen at all, because if that doesn't happen, it will be a very interesting precedent where a conflict resolution happens uh, underwritten by agreement of the regional powers like Russia and Turkey uh, to a lesser extent. Uh, so for Russia, being present in Azerbaijan is important. That's the first time after withdrawal of Russia raider in Gabala that Russia again has boots on the ground in Azerbaijan and in parts of Azerbaijan that are claimed by Azerbaijan as its territory and at the same time 
where there is a de facto Armenian controlled government. Uh, the agreement stipulates that the peacekeeping force will be there for five years, and then any side of the conflict, Armenia or Azerbaijan, can ask for their withdrawal with a six months in unification. So that opens a downside risk that if there is no diplomatic solution found in the next five years, which to me looks very unlikely, I don't think that there's going to be a diplomatic solution, uh, no matter how much effort it's, it's been pulled for domestic considerations, both in Azerbaijan and Armenia. At some point, Russia might find itself in a situation where Baku will ask Russians to leave, and there will be a huge risk of uh, renewed assault resulting in uh, flight of uh, Armenian population and huge humanitarian disaster. Uh, so then Russia will face a very grim choice whether it wants to overstay the welcome of Azerbaijani government and say no for humanitarian considerations, we will stay regardless of the agreement, or it has to withdraw with very dire consequences for, for the Armenian population and for its relationship with Armenia. So I guess that's where uh, the Minsk format and uh, the U.S. and the West might play a role in both managing the diplomatic resolution effort and then thinking about what happens after these five years. So I think that uh, the Western presence would be very, very welcome. In terms of uh, Russia's view of uh, the current uh, government of Nikol Pashinyan in Armenia, how does that play in whether, uh, you know, how Russia... Uh, has behaved in this uh, conflict? Well, I, th I think that uh, obviously there is no liking of, of the government in Armenia. Uh, Nikol Pashinyan came at, on top of a street revolution. Uh, he doesn't have many connections with Moscow. He doesn't know the people well here. Uh, and he is a kind of pro-democracy activist. Uh, and Russia doesn't, doesn't like uh, street revolutions in the former uh, Soviet state at all. Uh, many of Pashinyan's supporters are known for their sympathy towards the West and NATO, and uh, they are not uh, friends of Russia necessarily. But at the same time, back in 2018, Russia did move a finger to prevent this revolution to topple the Sarkisian regime because they understood that Russian instruments to influence the domestic situation in uh, Armenia are there, but they are limited, and they might be counterproductive because Armenia is so deeply in Russia's pocket that any government, uh, if it is a pragmatic government, will have to deal with Russia and will still be Russia's partner and will keep the alliance and will keep the presence in the Eurasian Economic Union. What Russia didn't like was Pashinyan's own handling of Karabakh crisis because his predecessors have been all veterans of that war. Uh, they had ties to Baku. They know how to talk to Aliyev, and they were, have been always very careful and mindful uh, of the growing military superiority of uh, Azerbaijan. So they were trying not to make overly provocative steps that could trigger a backlash from Baku. Uh, Pashinyan, in Moscow's view at least, has been very inexperienced. Uh, he basically uh, toughened his position on the negotiation. Uh, he allowed Nagorno-Karabakh to exercise more uh, control and enshrine more control in its constitution over the occupied Azeri regions. 
And uh, Russia saw his behavior as one of the triggers for uh, Baku's military operation this September. Hmm. Now, we haven't talked about uh, one other uh, player that had, uh, you know, designs or some kind of, uh, um, you know, strategy in this region, and that is China. Um, wh- wh- how do you, does China see this region? I guess despite all the talks of the Belt and Road project and Chinese inroads in South Caucasus, it's still not the major area of uh, Chinese involvement in the former Soviet space. I think that China is far more visible and far more concerned about Central Asia because uh, it's in its immediate neighborhood. Uh, it's bordering the troublesome Xinjiang region. Afghanistan is near. This region is source of uh, raw materials to China. And that's where China has much more leverage and uh, really a well-thought-through strategy on how to boost its uh, regional influence. South Caucasus is, of course, of interest, but China realizes that uh, the geography, the complexity of the regional power balance and lack of instruments on part of China doesn't make this region very receptive to Chinese influence. So there is a lot of hope that, oh, China will come and invest and build large ports and build infrastructure. But China is super cautious. So we see that in this conflict, China uh, played no role whatsoever and has been very, very cautious about making any uh, comments or statements. And what about the U.S.? I mean, um, it's it was interesting that under the Trump administration, uh, this region was more of an afterthought. And uh, when we had uh, the visit of uh, U.S. officials, it was usually about uh putting pressure on Iran and making sure that uh, both Armenia and Azerbaijan and Georgia as well uh, play along in terms of the U.S. uh, strategy of uh, putting economic and political pressure on Iran. Uh, Do you think a new Biden administration will change anything? Will will, uh, the U.S. return or, or exhibit more interest in this region? I think it's much easier to, to name the regions where the U.S. did pay attention than those that have been neglected under Trump. So South Caucasus is not just one example where uh, the U.S. Uh, presence and methodical work of its diplomats and military and intelligence officials uh, have been not on the level that we have seen under normal administration. So this time around, uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, tried to prepare a ceasefire agreement. It failed, and then uh, Washington moved on. Uh, so I guess that's going to change under President Biden. We still have to wait uh, for the nominations and the exact composition of his foreign policy team. I don't think that foreign policy, frankly, will be the major priority given the needs of uh, fighting COVID, uh, post-pandemic economic recovery, and then uh, domestic agenda of uh, reconciliation and healing the wounds and bringing the society together, which will take enormous part of president's and uh, vice president's time. Uh, so it really depends on who is in the NSC, who is in the Pentagon, who is the Secretary of State. And I don't guess that South Caucasus will be the uh, major area of uh, the U.S. attention. I think that it will be much more about uh, relationship with allies in Europe and focus on China. 
But Russia will definitely be on the U.S. mind, uh, and I think that we're going to see some more normal uh, effort to be present, to be at the table, and to be proactive rather than reactive or just simply absent. Alexander, thank you very much for your time. Uh, a reminder, my guest today was Alexander Gabuyev. He's a senior fellow and chair at Russia in the Asia-Pacific program of the Carnegie Moscow Center. Many thanks, and it was a pleasure to be with you. You've been listening to episode three of the Nagorno-Karabakh Nod, a podcast series by Radio Canada International. Check out our other podcasts on rcinet.ca. You can also download them on your favorite podcast platform.